Good morning, Kat. How are you? Good morning, Shirley. I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. I just come back from a very busy time in Hobart and Melbourne with Equitana. So very good to be back. Um, it was very good to meet lots of people that knew about Canna Therapy, the podcast. And um, this is a very special episode because uh, who I'd like to introduce you to is to one of my good friends and uh, exceptional horsewoman that I respect massively as a horse trainer, but also as a human being. I'd like to introduce you to Lisette Smith of Candid Equitation based in Portugal and uh, in Southwest Portugal. So actually, it's good evening for you, Lisette. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. Welcome to Canna Therapy and Kat, this is Lisette. I'm so excited. Shelly talks about you all the time. So it's Thank nice you. to finally meet you. Yeah, very cool. I'm very, oh, I'm very excited to introduce you to the world. Um, okay, so the first question we've got for you on Canna Therapy is, okay, Lisette, what's your elevator story? So if you only had about two minutes to tell someone who you are and what you did, what would you say? Okay, uh, my name's Lisette Marie Smith. I'm 32 years old. Um, I'm currently based in Port in Southwest Portugal, but I'm from the UK and I'm a horse trainer. Um, I work mainly with troubled horses and rehab cases, uh, but I also start, start young horses as well. Um, probably the biggest thing we've got going for us here is that we have a lot of really wide open countryside. So I spend very little time in the round pen, very little time drilling horses in circles and what have you. They learn what they need to learn when they're out in the open. Yeah, I, I, actually, just on that, I love following you on social media because the photographs you put up of where you're based in Portugal and the rides you go on and the antics of the horses you take with you, um, yeah, is, is, you know, it was really glorious to watch. All righty, Kat, next question. Okay, next question is how did you get into horses? Um, okay, so... Funny story, I went pony trekking on my eighth birthday. Um, you know, it's my parents stuck for something to do, right? Send a pony trekking. I love so that. they started pony trekking. And um, I was bumping along trotting on this fat little pony. And I noticed the guy in front of me was standing up and down. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that looks more comfortable. So I just copied this guy <laughs> and I just started doing rising trot. Um, and anyway, the guide trotted past me and was like, oh, very good. Um, then she asked my dad, how long has your daughter been riding? And he said, 10 minutes. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and she said, well, you know, you have to get that kid some lessons. Um, and, yeah, my parents would have loved to, but we were really not well off. And we lived in the city, so horses were not all that acceptable, you know, all that um, accessible to us. Um, so forgot about it for a little bit. And my dad was a builder, and he took on a job at a riding school uh, at some point doing you know just mending I think yeah, he had a problem with the pipes or something and they were replacing yeah. the lock um, so then he took this job on and they said oh by the way your daughter can have lessons um, you know as part of the payment if you like and he was like right it's free so you're going um, and I was like great <laughs> so then they took me along to the riding school and that's pretty much how it started then and then I would spend all weekend there helping out in exchange for my lesson and that's that's pretty much how I got into it. Yeah, wow. All right, now, next question. If you had a professional background in something other than horses, does your background give you any special insights into horses and how you ride them? Absolutely not. I have no background besides no, horses. I, 
can I just, can I just cut you off there? But what should be added on to the story to say how you got into horses is your professional background is you've been in, you've worked professionally with horses since you were very young, all around the world, which is quite yeah. outstanding for you. So how old was it when you left the UK and, and went to travel overseas? Um, I think I was 17. Yeah. I would have been wow. 17 or 18. So yeah, you I went were... to Sweden and some race horses for a bit. Yeah. You and were... then I went to Italy. You weren't old enough. That was your professional career. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's amazing where you've worked and all different types of horses. So what has it been? What? So go through all the disciplines that you've worked with. Um, I started off in horse racing. I oh, know yeah. I tell a lie. When I was 15, I was helping out for money um, at a standard bread racing yard. So I was doing the sulky racing. Okay. Then I went to thoroughbred racing. Yep. Um, then I had a really bad pelvis injury and I never came back from that. So I decided to go into a gentler life um, doing endurance racing <laughs> instead. Um, yep. And then I mixed it up a little bit. And then I started, you know, doing a bit of jumping. Then I was like, mm, I want to try something different again. So then I went into Western riding and then I went into reining specifically and I guess I take bits and pieces from every every one of those yeah. disciplines because there's something in all of them. So do you have a preferred discipline now and are you interested in competition? Oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> nah. <laughs> uh, competition has no no real interest in me. It just seems it just seems like a lot of stress to go yeah. through cutting your horse here, there and everywhere, you know, for a it's what, not even a 25 cent ribbon, right? It probably costs even less than that to produce. It, just, <laughs> it doesn't appeal to me, yeah. um, but I do have most of the, most disciplines, I would say. I think there's something, something to be taken from all of them. Like I insist all of my riders, they must be able to jump and yeah. all of my horses must be able to jump. Now they don't need to be jumpers. That's a really important distinction to make. But I think there is so much to be gleaned from riders and for the horses with the act of being able to jump. There's skills they learn on the way there. And there's certainly skills they learn from doing it. Same goes for the dressage. You know, there's various things you can learn from dressage. It's ridiculous how much you can learn from that, actually. The things a horse can do with its body is quite amazing. Uh, Western riding, um, I mean, everyone needs to learn not to hang off their horse's face, right? So Western is fantastic for that. And um, yeah, I could go on <laughs> with that. Yeah. There's just something from all of them. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. Yeah, your experience. And what countries have you worked in around the world? Go through oh, that. Um, oh, obviously. You haven't, you, worked, you haven't worked in Australia. I think that's one of the only countries. No, I haven't. You haven't <laughs> no, I've done Sweden, Norway, Denmark, France, Italy, Spain, obviously Portugal. Uh, United Arab Emirates, Egypt, and the USA, Greece. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, yeah I think that's it. Yeah. That's, it. that's, <laughs> that's incredible. crazy. Yeah, you have such this... Um... Oh, Romania. I forgot Romania. And yeah. Your, yeah, your experiences in <laughs> Romania. Uh, yeah, because that just gives you what an insight going to all different countries in different disciplines. And um, yeah, I love the knowledge that you brought from all that. And hopefully and we're going to get in. Keeping, I think keeping horses in different ways in different yes. countries is important as well. You know, I know how to keep a horse in 40, you know, 40 degrees Celsius plus, but I also know how to do it in minus 25. Yeah. And it just makes you so much more able to think on your feet because you've yeah. seen it all yes you have <laughs> cool all right okay so 
What led to you becoming a professional clinician? Okay, I honestly, my blog should be called The Reluctant Horse Trainer because <laughs> even though I worked with horses all my yeah. life, I really did not want to be at the forefront teaching people. I was quite happy as an exercise rider. Um, the thing that turned it around was when I got my horse Bruno in Austria and I was like, ah, this is just a little a project horse I can play around with. Because by this point, I decided I was through with horses, actually. I was giving it up, but I was like, I can have my own horse and I can just work shitty jobs, you know, cleaning toilets and what have you, and I can ride my own horse in the meantime. So <laughs> I took Bruno with me from Austria to the UK and I started working with him. Yeah. And like I say, with the intention of selling him a 10 year project. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, that didn't happen, but I did work with him and I started writing about it. And people who were with me in person started asking me, like, how did I do what I did with him? And he started getting pretty good. So people started asking for lessons. Um, and then obviously via my blog, people from further afield then wanted me to teach them as well. And it eventually got to a point where I was so busy teaching, I didn't have any time to scrub toilets anymore. And then before I knew it, I was uh, I was training horses full time. Yeah, wow. that's incredible. And all over the world, because you are technically yeah. a very international clinician. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so right. you had a specific light bulb moment that has changed the way that you've looked at horses. Okay, I need to get a violin out for this one because it's pretty depressing. Um, I, when I was in the United Arab Emirates, I was doing you know, a couple of endurance horses, but we had a lot of um, guests coming to ride as well. And it was all retired, retired race horses from the Godolphin uh, racing yeah. operation that we used. So it was all thoroughbreds and Arabians. So obviously the ideal tourist horses, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there was the one who was particularly difficult and his name was his racing name was feeling good but I called him Gus and at that point I was the only one who could ride him because he was so hot and he was so just I mean looking back now he was just worried about everything he used yeah. to fall with sweat he was probably riddled with ulcers well he was because he was an American horse so he'd you know done the whole long transport over there yeah and he was and he was really he was very thin but he was very very excitable and I loved it I absolutely loved it he was always taking off and rearing and you know I thought it made me the hard man at that point I think I was 22 back then and I was you know very much full of piss and vinegar myself and I loved that sort of stuff mm. what I didn't bank on and what I didn't think of at that point was that what would happen if anyone else other than me was not able to ride him for me yeah. it was ego points oh it's only me that can ride this horse yeah um but for the horse in the long run it wasn't that healthy. was yeah. and it, by the time I realized that it was too late now I knew what I'd done because when I left that company I'd already asked if I could buy that horse because I was like well shit like what's going to happen to him now and they'd said yes at the time and then after I quit they went back on their word and said no actually you can't and I fought with them for six weeks over this and then I was forced to walk away from him. And as far as I know, I was told he was sold to a buyer in Iraq. Oh. So I don't know what happened to that horse. I mean, at best, he will be scattered across an, an old oil field. At worst, he will be a dancing horse suffering massively because of that decision I made to be a hard man instead of changing my horse around and making him a citizen that could survive with any with any person, you know? Yeah. So that that was the light bulb for me. That That's what turned everything around. 
Yeah, that really goes with that thing that a horse is really on its worth. It's training. So you can yep. have whatever breed or, you you know, <laughs> what it is, but it's it's training that will give its its value, you know, and how that it responds. Yeah. Oh, that's a really meaningful story. But, well, actually, that actually goes into our next question. Was there a significant horse in your past that taught you an important lesson? Um, so is there any others besides? So he was your light bulb moment about the worth of horses yeah. with training. Was there any other? Well, I know you've come across many horses. Yeah. Is there any other <laughs> horses out there besides Gus? Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, one who sticks out to me, who has been really useful to me in recent days, actually, uh, but I'm yeah. going back about five years, was my new forest pony, Bowie, yeah. um, who came to me. He was very aggressive, and I bought him just as, as a project, an actual project. I do manage yeah. to sell projects <laughs> occasionally. And <laughs> so I got him, and I think he was about 13 too. He was only small, but still, yeah. you know, I would come into the field and he would be charging. And when he saw me coming with my flag and my rope, he was like, I've seen people like you before. Like, I've got your number. And he really taught me about, it wasn't about the training per se. I needed a relationship with him. And yeah. doing that, it needed to be a lot of time where we were doing stuff. So he didn't feel trapped with me but where I wasn't really asking much. And I just walked with that horse so many miles because that was the only thing I could do at that point. I just took him in hand and I just walked and walked and walked. You know, this was when I was in Wales. Yes. And we just walked and walked and walked and walked. And then I took him to see, the, I took him to the train station so he could see trains and I got him a little bit worried so that then, you know, he kind of had to look to me to find out what to do. And at some point through all that, he learned that I could make good decisions and that developed trust between us at that point you know it was too, a lot of yes answers I got out of him and yeah. an awful lot of decisions where he was stuck and then I gave him a way out yeah. um and he actually came in very useful to me recently because I've got another horse in training at the moment called Django yeah. and he is very very similar he's oh, been wow. asked to do a lot of stuff that he's not capable of doing he's yeah. had a bunch of trainers try a bunch of bad shit with him yeah. And he was very skeptical. You know, we had to stop people going in the field at one point because he would pin his ears back and come after them if he felt like they were putting pressure on him, like even if they were yeah. coming to catch their own horse. And now I walk in and he comes straight to me with his ears forward and he's like, OK, what are we doing today? That's very so cool. Bowie really, really laid the foundation for me to do a better job with Django. Yeah. Now tell us about, because I think Bowie's having a bit of a time of his life at the moment now. So he's still. So tell us about where Bowie is now. Oh, he uh, he is in, I think he's in East Anglia somewhere, which is in the east of, of England. Yeah. Uh, but he actually ended up with somebody I met in Colorado who then moved to the UK. Yeah, how about <laughs> um, that? And then when I moved away then, she was looking for a, a companion that put on weight very easily because that was her other horse. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, well, you can have mine if you like. Yeah. <laughs> and she took him and she still has him. And yeah, I keep in touch with him via Facebook and he's he's having a really great time. Yeah, cool. That's so this true. other horse that you found that's similar to him, have you been leading him or you just been leading, leading and ponying him off horses or just letting him? Yeah. yeah. A lot of ponying, yeah. lots and lots of ponying. Then we ponied him with tack on. I just got him used to people talking around him just because mm -hmm. we were talking or he was next to us didn't mean it was all about him. I yeah. got him to ignore him basically. That was the yeah. first, I think, month of training we did was just getting him to ignore us. Yeah. And then it became more tolerant because like everything didn't mean something to yeah. him. Yeah, very that's cool. super interesting. Training can be really 
come at from so many different points of view. Yeah. So who would you say has been the most influential in your life and the way that you've looked at training horses? Okay, so in the past, there have been three, but this is going back quite a way now. Um, it's been, I've been holed up in Portugal for a few years and I'm quite happy that way. Um, but prior to that, there was Harry Whitney was a huge, mm. huge influence. Then Jeff Sanders also and Warwick Schiller, but that was, as I say, years ago. I'm finding in recent times that there is so much information on the front line right now. I think Russ Jacobs wrote a really good article about it on his page, Good Horsemanship, um, a few days ago, and I actually commented on it because it resonated with me. Mm. And he said, you get to a point somewhere where you take on a lot of other people's ideas and you're getting good at practicing other people's ideas. And then through doing that, you have that experience and then you start developing your own ideas and then you want to test that out instead. Yeah. And I'm currently at that point where I want to test my own ideas. Yeah. Mm. Yep. <laughs> no, I, I, um, I love what you can do. So I love um, following you in the stories of the horses you work with because you're one of the first people, I suppose, that got me to even consider the bigger picture. Because I know you take a horse in and you'd be like, no, nah, I can't touch it for a while. It's got to go out in the paddock for a while and I've got to fix its feet and I've got to work on this part of its body and no, I've got to change its diet and all this kind of thing. And I'll, I'll start when it's ready. And, you know, you always just always had that, um, that real holistic approach. Uh, to working with the horse as a whole, like just not training it, but working with its body and your knowledge and insight into that is pretty phenomenal. Oh, thank you. Yeah, like you're able to bring bring horses back with just a soundness issues that would be written off most of the time and you're quite successful of doing that. Yeah, there's a reason for that. I'm kind of uh, stuck for options in Portugal because there's not very good horse hospitals here if we want to take a horse... Yeah to really really be sorted out we have to take it to Madrid and that is in Spain and that is like a 15-hour drive which I know for Aussies is nothing but for us <laughs> it's uh, it's a long long way and if you've got an unsound horse anyway you don't want to be trailering it 15 wow. hours it's not yeah wow so we tried to sort of use the work as physiotherapy uh, to work for them and obviously we take into account the feet I, I, I'm like I can't change whatever's going on internally if there's something but if there's an improvement that can be made and I can do it, then I will do it. So if there's something wrong with the angles on the feet, we get that sorted out. Mm. If I'm like, okay, his diet's not great, I can sort that out. Yeah. If the way he's moving isn't great and he's not covering that much distance or anything, then I'm like, okay, we can get him covering more miles. And I find that, you know, that formula, it works. I'd say 99% of the time and that 1%, yeah. it doesn't, it does. Because if I work them a bit, as in when I say work, it's ponying them alongside another horse up a hill. Yep. If it doesn't work, I use the term doesn't work because the horse goes lame. It goes even worse. Then yeah. I have my answer. Then yeah. I'm like, okay, then we stop here. This is the end of the line. Yeah. But if they get better, fantastic. Yeah. We found the answer. So for me, you know, either way, the horse, you know, gets peace. If it doesn't work, then if it does, yeah. then all gravy. So are you trimming these horses yourself? No, no. I work with, there's two trimmers that I work oh, with. And one, one's not a trimmer. He's a farrier, actually, yeah. but he prefers all horses to be barefoot if possible. 
Yeah. And at the ranch I'm on currently that I live at and I work out of, we have 35 horses here. Yeah. I think we have 21 in work. They all go trail riding. Every single horse here is barefoot. And when I say barefoot, I mean barefoot, no boots. Yeah. yeah wow. So do you find that the when they first come in, they might struggle with that? And then over time, they, they adjust? No, and... um, reason being, the, major, uh, the British horse we took in, she struggled. Yeah. Um, and the German horses that come in occasionally struggle, but most of the horses we have in are Portuguese and they don't struggle with it because they, it's quite difficult in Portugal to leave your horses out on the hills for the first three years and forget, forget they exist, basically. Yeah, okay. um, so the land that they grow up on is very similar to the same land that we ride on, yeah. um, which is very hard and very rocky. So their feet are already adapted to it. It's taken Bruno, I'd say, about 18 months in which, you know, to be able to be ridden in all seasons out on these hard trails. But, um, you know, I booted him when he was struggling. And then when he wasn't, I just left him. And eventually, two years down the line, we're all good. Yeah. Yeah, that adaption. Lisette, what frustrates you most in the equestrian world? Oh, God, how long have you got? <laughs> um, I would say the biggest one is the overall kickback against new information yeah it feels like if you you know someone says they've got a problem and then you present them with a solution or something not even a solution but something to think about could mm. it be that oh no no da, 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 da. you know i've got horses 40 years this sort of stuff you know there's no sort of consideration for hmm, maybe i should look into that there's no i've never seen anything like it in any other sport or hobby I suppose like the thing that gets me you know if someone's dog is having behavioral issues for instance the first thing people think of is getting a trainer like maybe I should ask someone who knows better than me in mm. the horse world there's real kickback against using a trainer or asking advice and I don't understand it I don't get it and it's it's really really frustrating to me like the answer to a lot of people's problems is right there under their nose and they don't want to look at it. Yeah, I, I can kind of. Uh, the only thing is, though, because I um, made terrible, <laughs> did terrible things, my my own naive, ignorant self, I can never forget. And I think it's just that it, there's very strong beliefs and traditions yeah. um, in the world. And when you've got everyone having the same kind of beliefs and traditions around you and you're surrounded by people just say, your coach, your your adjustment or your barn and your riding club are all doing exactly the same thing. And then some person's there telling you to do something different. You know, I think I think that's why I think equestrianism is so wrapped in beliefs and traditions that people get blind. They can only see what they know to see and to think yeah. out of that box. Like I know for myself, um, I was just blind to so much. But that's why it's important to step out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Working with various horses in various places, every place has its tradition. And I think that's why I quit working with horses because at some point I was like, okay, they're all different traditions, but they're all bullshit traditions. Yeah. So I'm not interested in any of them, you know, and then it finally occurred to me, oh, you know, maybe I could make my own new traditions. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've. You have definitely seen it all <laughs> from the Middle East to Europe, to America, to Portugal and, and all the different practices and stuff. Yeah, you have to be careful, actually, because if, if Portugal is it's, it's second world, you know, so it's not it's not like Egypt yeah. or anywhere like that. 
but yeah. it's still up and coming and animal welfare is not is not very yeah. good over here and again you know you can get a little bit blind to it like it's actually quite difficult for me to see if a horse is getting a bit thin because you see thin horses all the time with the gypsies yeah. driving past and what have you I don't even know if they are gypsies but you know we call them the gypsies the people who go past in their carts you know with a mule attached to it by you know two, two inches of rope or something with its head stretched out um wow. but yeah we see a lot of that and often it, as I say it can be very difficult to look at your own horses and be like is he looking a bit thin and yeah and yeah. I had the same thing in the Middle East I was like nah they're not thin and then I went back to the UK where a lot of horses are obese <laughs> yeah yeah and then I was like oh my god how have they not dropped dead already you know um, but that's again where you have to kind of develop your own your own barometer, I suppose, in that sense. Yeah. So, is this something that you would say that horse people should start doing today? Hell yes, go for a run. Get really tired, really, really sweaty, and make it so that you're not able to tell whoever you're with, like that you're hurting and you can't do it anymore. Do that. I see so many horses, it's my biggest pet hate. They ride swimming pools, as we call it in Portugal, where they ride around and around and around and around an arena. They do a couple of 20 meter circles, then they ride around and around and around. And it just looks so bloody tiring. And you know, they've got their heads pulled in and they're pushing them forwards at the same time. And I just look at them and I think, you got this horse running and running and running. Clearly it's not in the shape to do it. And yet you on top, you couldn't run a bath. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you just develop so much more empathy. You know, if you get yourself yeah. fit, even if the goal is not to make yourself a marathon runner or anything, mm. if you just experience how it is to be tired and what it does to your psyche, yeah. then you have so much more empathy for your horse on the things yeah. you're asking it to do. And if you're fit, it's so much easier to do them in the first place. And you're not, not such a burden to the horse. Yeah, it's, it's so much easier. Yeah, I mean, I noticed after I came out of chemotherapy, like I've, ne I've never been overweight. And if anything, after chemo, I was the opposite. I was the lightest I've been since I was in school, I think. Mm. Um, but I noticed even now, like my core hasn't come back as well as it should. And I'm nowhere near as strong as I was before. Um, mm. And that affects me. It affects me a heck of a lot. You know, the yeah. teenagers uh, that I teach, they challenged me to a jump off last week. Um, <laughs> and of course, you know, I, I couldn't. I couldn't let the kids uh, think that I was just a pussy who stood in the middle teaching. <laughs> yeah, you never did it well. myself anymore. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I'll do it, you know, and let's let's yeah. make it even more challenging. Let's draw names out of hats so that we yeah. don't even pick our own horses. Let's just pick horses out. And yeah. I got this one horse who was just, you know, he's renowned for being extremely strong. The kids really struggle with him. And uh, anyway, I jumped on this horse and he wrote when it did a nice round for me, you know, he was really great, but um, I was absolutely gasping by the end of it. And I was aching for about two days afterwards. Oh, and no. I was just flipping my reins over every single fence because I, I couldn't stay with him at all, you know? Um, but yeah, it, it just makes it a heck of a lot easier when, when yeah. you're fitter. On my Facebook group, I, you know, I've done a few confidence and trust challenges to try to help people. And just from this, this is what I make them do, right? I say, I want you to walk for 30 minutes per day. I give them like a link to a Pilates, like that has a free trial and make them do the simplest abs and glute workout. And then I ask them to do something with their horse every day. I don't care if it's just going into the paddock, putting a halter on it and leading it up to give it a brush, just something. 
And then, but I get them to then rate how confident they felt handling that horse every day. And it's so funny. It goes as their kind, and I also get them to say how sore they were from their exercising workout. And it's really interesting that confidence increases like this, along with their discomfort from their Pilates workout decreases. It, it yeah. matches as they start feeling more physically stronger and fitter. And just I that. see this in the horses as well. Yeah, yeah. They just go, it just goes up. Their confidence goes up. Um, so I was giving a workshop on confidence and trust on, not when yesterday, they- the day before. And, yeah, that's my number one, like, you know, you want to build your confidence and trust? Move get fit yeah yeah <laughs> because it has a mm-hmm. massive effect on your sense of vulnerability with the horse yeah and you can do yeah, that and it sure. do- doesn't matter how old you are body keeps physically no, no. um yeah. if you do have problems then you know go to an expert that helps you where to start that exercise to get your body functioning again but yeah it's a yeah. massive thing yeah so that's a really good answer for that question all right i think it's my turn to ask a question now um okay have you ever had a failure in your life that turned out to be a good thing and if so could you tell us about it a failure oh, yeah. thing and yeah well the thing is I don't consider I mean it sounds really like I'm trying to be very new agey here um I don't consider failure to be a thing I think it's the wrong word if something doesn't work usually it paves the way for something else um and that's what I'm finding it's that old adage that you either win or you learn right yep and I found that to be so so true I mean I think probably the best example of that was how I ended up getting stuck in Portugal yeah I mean I was meant to go to Japan for three months and then uh COVID hit and I ended up in Portugal I came for four days and and then I never left. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't That's it? That's absolutely <laughs> crazy. Yeah. God, how many years ago was that? So four, four um, days has turned into how many years? It'll be coming up three years in February. Yeah. yeah wow. How about that? You never know when your life's going to change. Yeah. Wow. I literally haven't even gone back to the UK or anything. I've just been here for the last, uh, last yeah. three years and a lot has happened. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say, you did mention it before, um, however, you've just gone through cancer treatment, very, very young, uh, diagnosed with breast cancer, and you've just come out the other side of that. And, you know, that's just added a kind of an even more special gift to your writings and stuff on Facebook has been following, following that journey. So um, how's cancer changed your life? Oh, God, how long you got? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am so much more easygoing since I've had cancer. It's ridiculous. Like I'm so much less worried than I was. I mean, I hear of a lot of people after they have cancer, they're riddled with anxiety about the future. And with me, I'm just like, you know, all any of us ever have is today. And I just happened to, just when I had cancer, there was a chance that my todays might not be as many as other people's. Mm. Um, And there's, there's peace in that. It really makes you think, oh, well, we, I've got a whole day. Every day is a new day and I get to do what I like with it. And I get to be physically healthy and I get to be full of energy and I get to I get to do whatever the hell I like. I mean, how awesome is that? You get up every single day and you have yeah. 24 hours to just do whatever you need to do. Like, that's amazing. You don't have to lie in bed. You don't have to be ill. I mean, maybe this is being too graphic here. It doesn't feel like you're shitting glass when you go to the toilet. Um, 
yeah <laughs> just stuff like that you know like really really basic stuff there's times I'm sat on the toilet even and I'm just like wow this this doesn't hurt and it's it's amazing and I'm not shitting out a lung it's just it's it's amazing yeah it's <laughs> everything big. is so, so yeah. much more amazing even mundane terrible things like that are just it, everything is just so much better after you've had cancer that's what I found anyway I'm a lot happier I don't worry about things like I used to for sure it's um no if I could take it back and never have cancer I would not because I think I'm not a better person but I'm a much more multi-layered person than I was yeah. before you had lots Maybe of I wouldn't have sepsis. bigger patterns sepsis, like, uh, I wouldn't have sepsis sepsis, sepsis not, sepsis, yeah, that, that, no didn't, that was didn't enjoy sepsis no this wasn't good fun. Cancer was all right. COVID wasn't worth the hype in my experience. Join me for more recommendations on the best illnesses to get. <laughs> oh, no. Well, I, I got to say, it was like watching you go through treatment and then with your sepsis battle and stuff like that and seeing you so sick, going from someone that was so beautiful and strong and, you know, you were venturing the world and then to see you go through that that treatment and losing weight and losing your hair and then to see you grow back into this you know back into your beautiful self you like well you always were beautiful and probably even more beautiful now but just seeing that health come back to you and you know and your writings about it it's like like I'm so glad you've come out the other side from that because yeah with that extra layer that makes you even more special in my opinion oh thank you yeah all right, Kat, I think it's your turn, so I don't take I think it might be. Do you have anything at the moment that you're currently curious about? Okay, um, this one was quite a challenge for me because I flipped back and forth with things that I'm interested in, so I thought I would choose the thing that I searched for, uh, that I searched for last on Google. Yeah. So yeah. get excited. <laughs> okay. Um, it could be it can be anything from what shoe size was Jesus to the latest one, which I've chosen, which is why are cats so flexible? <laughs> and I thought of this because <laughs> there is a point to this. Stick with me. Um, because we had the osteopath for the dogs and the horses. And anyway, yeah. the dogs were crippled, the horses were a write-off, like they always are. And I was watching my two kittens and I was like, you never see a cat with a bad back, do you? Ever. Cats are always, they're always all right. They're always bendy as hell. You see these cats sometimes and, you know, they say his name, you know, his name's Trash Can and we found him, you know, we found him in a sewer outside <laughs> an Indian restaurant or something. And he's there, 21 years old, and he's flexible as hell. And you're like, geez, I wish my back was like that. Um, and I just thought about it, so I Googled it. And I didn't realize, apparently, their spine is not as closely linked as dogs and humans or any other animal. And the discs in between are really soft, apparently. Yeah, OK. Um, so that it moves more. And the most yeah. fascinating thing, they don't have a collarbone. Oh, wow. Yeah, OK. don't have collarbones. Wow, they're just... Okay. Actually, there's a really good documentary on cats on Netflix. Because one thing I like watching is documentaries. And, um, yeah, they're actually rated if you had to rate the greatest predator on the planet, it's the cat. How lucky are we that cats are, like, three or four kilos? Imagine yeah, yeah. If they, well, they're they, not out they to kill like us. Tigers, right? But imagine a house cat the size of a, ti- a, size of a, yeah. you know, a Bengal tiger. Yeah. That would We'd be, be wild. <laughs> We'd be gone. <laughs> oh, that's funny. All right. Okay, so on from that, from, from Googling cat 
cat why cats are so <laughs> flexible and the shoe size of Jesus. So do you have any other interests besides horses? And if so, can you tell us about it? Occasionally. Um, no, I think probably the thing I stick with the most is because of the whole cancer journey, I'm quite interested in fitness and health and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I try to, I've got a treadmill as well, because often going out running because it gets so hot here, I think it's quite similar to Australia, the temperatures we get. Um, so it's either boiling hot or it's, or it's raining. So often running up and down slippery, muddy hills and the, you know, when it, when it's boiling hot is awful. So I have a treadmill. Yeah. Um, I try to do my 10 minutes running in the morning and I have my little workout routine with my weights and stuff. Um, so yeah, just keeping, keeping myself healthy, I guess, cancer really, really gave me a wake up yeah. call. Um, with that and I'm really big on vitamins and I'm one of these idiots who you know I used to laugh at you for doing cold showers like you know I was there like how the hell can you do that you must be a psychopath you know <laughs> well guess who does it after a run in the morning now yeah. this guy yeah so I read that it was really good for your immune system and I was yeah. like well can't hurt can it so yeah. uh yeah <laughs> oh, that's cool now also what people don't know so besides you just mentioned it then, you, uh, and I'll, of course, I'll just add two things that I know about you onto that list about other interests. You are, or you were actually a very good runner, junior yes. runner in the yeah. UK. Yeah. Yeah. So what distances did you do? Long distance or short distance? 100 and 200 metres. Yeah. yeah, very good. And also you are, and if um, anyone listening to this, they need to check out Candid Equitation on Facebook. I'll put up the links on this podcast because um Lisette you are a fabulous writer um you have the ability to educate and be hilarious at the same time so um absolutely recommend checking out anything you write or present that and lately you've been doing these really great um blogs and posts with a lot of photographs uh with a lot of short descriptions under it they're brilliant as typically from you it'll be brilliant oh yeah yeah, so I'm going to add those two things to your um, <laughs> to things I want people to know about you. Um, very interesting. All right, Kat, next question. If you were going to write a book, what would it be about? Oh, there are so many things I could write a book about. Um, but probably the most obvious one would be how horses help me through cancer or how yeah. cancer helped me through horses, as I call it, because yeah. I am a better trainer for having cancer that whole thing just deserves deserves a book in itself along you know outside of the realms of everything else you know such as working with horses in various countries yeah and what have you so yeah it would be that can you tell what, us a little bit about why how it helped you work with horses and how horses helped you through cancer can you just give a little bit more information um so my dogs were really great support to me emotionally like mm. if I was feeling crap though you know my dogs were always there but yeah. the horses really, really gave me a reason to get up and to yeah. find my way back to myself in many ways. Because the thing is, when you've got cancer, you become the cancer patient. Everyone can see that you've got a bald head. You didn't have any eyebrows. You look terrible. Everyone feels sorry for you. Like people would offer to get things off shelves for me in shops, which like was very sweet. But it incensed me in a way because yeah. I was like, do I look that pathetic at this point? Well, it was like, well, of course you are because it's 25 yeah. Celsius outside and you're in a parka jacket. So obviously, you know, you are looking pretty pathetic. Um, and I found with the horses, I could 
be Lizette the horse trainer again instead of Lizette the cancer patient and that was really important on days where I wasn't riding even I could which was very rare actually I think I rode for most of it um so even not on days when I wasn't riding because that was so unusual but on days when I had a little bit more energy again I would also teach so that I could be like wow I can I can still contribute and I can still be useful even though I'm I'm sick and I'm not at my best right now. It kind of showed me that this body I had, it was just a shell. Um, you know, the person inside was still there. And just because I was sick and I'd lost all this weight and I'd lost all, you know, function of God knows what, all these different body parts. Um, I was still the same person inside and that the horses gave me an anchor to myself. Yeah. That would be the, the best answer to that. I think there were so many other things too. Like, I mean, do, even if I would just go down and I would bring a horse out of the field and I would feed it, yeah. that was something I had done. And I think horses, horses do that to you yeah. like nothing else. Yeah, they make you move. So how did cancer help you with horses then? Um, because I had to use uh, my brain a heck of a lot more, for one. Like what I was lacking physically, because there were days I was so breathless, it was ridiculous. Mm. Um, so... I had to rely, like round pen training, for instance, I didn't have it in me to walk for laps and laps and laps of the round pen. Um, you know, even though you're not walking as far as the horse, there's still a lot of walking involved. Mm. And I had to rely an awful lot more on my timing and my observations. And I had to think much more before I made a decision. I couldn't shoot from the hip, I suppose. Yeah. Um, all of my decisions had to be thought out and could I follow through? Was I strong enough to do it? Because yeah. even at one point, um, a weird thing you get from chemotherapy, which I think people don't realize is it affects your eyesight. And oh, because yeah. it affected my eyesight, yeah, it, um, it, if you've got an existing problem, it tends to make it worse. If you don't, you will end up with problems. Yeah, wow. And my problem was I had mild astigmatism in my right eye. And that was it. That was just how it was. After chemotherapy, I was left with mild astigmatism in my left eye and extreme astigmatism in my right eye. Yeah, wow. And this affected my balance really, really badly. And I found for a while I couldn't even walk backwards in a straight line. I'd be trying yeah. to draw a horse and I'd be thinking, like, why is, why is he doing that? Why is he running around the side of me? Why is he not getting this? And then I would realize that I'd look at my footprints in the sand and I'd see that they were all over the place. I hadn't gone straight backwards at all. And I had to kind of relearn and relearn different bits of me, you know, because I couldn't rely so much on muscle memory in that sense yeah. anymore. I had to be way more conscious of what I was doing. So yeah. it felt like I was learning how to do it all over again. I think I got a lot more empathy for people who start doing groundwork because yeah. often, I mean, I was the worst for it. I used to look at people trying to do groundwork or they'd be doing round pen work. And I'd be like, swing your arms, God damn it. You look like you've just come out of a mental asylum walking with your <laughs> arms straight down like that. Um, but then because I had this you know these problems myself now I was like oh, I'm actually having to think about what I'm it. doing mm. and it's not natural to me anymore it made me a little bit more compassionate in that sense I'm never going to be the next mother Teresa I do prefer horses to people but it did at least give me a little bit of yeah. uh, a bit of insight I suppose I do suffer with gifted child syndrome sometimes where <laughs> everything is easy for me so I don't appreciate it. <laughs> How many horses do you have of your own at the moment? Um, I've got two. Yep. Uh, I've got Bruno, my quarter horse, yep. uh, who I mentioned earlier, who I found when I was an intern on a reigning stable in Austria. 
Yeah. Um, and he came to the UK with me. He's been to the USA with me. He now lives in Portugal with me. I've had him, it'll be 10 years in March. And so he just put lovely. them on a truck and moved Yeah, on, on a truck, on a plane, whatever. Yeah. He's done it all. He's been everywhere. <laughs> okay. Wow. So he just comes with me and he does absolutely everything. We're just at that point now where I think I think about it and he does it. He does it before I've even thought about it. Um, it's not very exciting. We're, we're like a very long marriage in that sense. You know, it's not very exciting, but we know what each other did. We know what each other wants. We know what each other needs. And it's just very, very comfortable. You know, it doesn't matter if I can ride him on the trail in a neck ring, for instance. It's rare. Yeah. I use a bridle on him at all these days. Yeah. If I feel like showing off a little bit because someone's because someone's walking past I'm like yeah let's do a quick raining spin let's do a little sliding stop things like that he'll do and the same you know if the kids are jumping I'll be like yeah, let's go show them how it's done yeah. so we'll so, go and pop over the fences as well <laughs> how long were you in Portugal before you decided that you were going to bring him over six months yeah, that's so yeah. cool. Um, but I've been loving the stories of Bruno because you do a lot of riding out in the trails with the young horses and, and with the, you know, other workers at the ranch. And you let a lot of horses just, a lot of the horses just come with you, just completely at liberty. Yeah. And I've been loving the stories of Bruno, <laughs> Bruno's antics of, of late going on his own separate adventures because <laughs> so what's he been doing he just just decides to leave the group and go do his own thing well he's big and ugly enough to know that there is no sense whatsoever in going off cantering for the next two kilometers it's tiring why would you do that it makes no sense he'd rather just stay here and eat the grass and he knows <laughs> all the trails like the back of his hand. I mean, I've ridden that horse in a 50 kilometer radius of the ranch. So he knows all the trails within a 50 kilometer radius. Wherever you drop him, he knows the way home. So yeah. if at any point he gets sick of it, he doesn't go home. He just stops and eats and I'm calling him and I'm going, Bruno, Bruno. And he looks at me and he's like, yeah, it's fine. You know, you go, it's okay. I'll catch you up. Yeah, no, so that, that's not the idea. Yeah. You're out here to do exercise, mate. And he's like, no, no, it's good. Don't don't worry about me. I'm fine. Yeah, I'll sort my throat out. <laughs> and yeah, it, it makes for some entertaining <laughs> situations. Yeah, no, his antics have been well recorded on Facebook, which is pretty funny. Um, sorry, but you're another, you're a young horse too. Yeah, I've got my little Lusitano stallion, Branco. Um he was kind of a present to myself and I got him two weeks before I got diagnosed with breast cancer actually. Um, I got him because I realized at some point that Bruno was going to be 14 and that's not old but I was like if I'm going to have another young horse which I am I would like it to be able to take over from Bruno when he is starting to slow down a bit. And I thought, well, if it takes me four years to get a fall going, then I mean, that's Bruno will be 18 by that point. So that's a reasonable time to assume that, you know, I'm going to need someone to take over at some point. And I would like to transition onto a horse that I already have a connection with. So the, you know, it's not going to be such a, a big shock to me. So I had it in my head. I really, really wanted a, a white unicorn type and I'm in Portugal. So I wanted a Lusitano. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I found him on this website. It's it's the Portuguese equivalent of eBay, I guess. You know, there's watches and you can buy trampolines and God knows what. Um, and there was also Branco. <laughs> and they say not to buy the first horse you see, but um, I met him and within the first five minutes, I was just like, this is great. Because the thing that I noticed with him the most, 
he was very interested in me, but he did not step towards me. He had his nose out and he was in my pockets and he was in my face and my hands, but he did not step into me. So it was interest without pushiness. And I did a little walk around with him. He had been brought in, I think, three weeks previously. And other than that, was unhandled, never had his feet done. And he was 14 months old at the time. Yeah. So he was a, a real blank slate, but nothing, nothing bad had happened to him or anything. And so I decided to take him home. And he's just been an absolute blast. He is so different to Bruno. I mean, Bruno has been coming out of himself as he's got older, but Branco is just naturally, he's just an entertainer. He is such a clown. It's so much fun to work with him. And I always said I wanted a horse. My next one would be as intelligent as Bruno, but would be more fun because I can do fun things with Bruno, but Bruno is not fun. Yeah. Uh, Branco is really, really great fun. I mean, he really loves doing tricks and because he's still a stallion, he's very, very exuberant as well. And he thinks he's all that in a bag of pistachio. And he's just really just such an entertaining guy to have around. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love, um, um, I love every photo of him. He, you taught him to smile, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> I curse the day I did that. <laughs> you do curse the day you did that. Every time you point a camera at him, he's, he's always pulls the most funny faces. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, literally, he sees a phone come out and the smile comes out straight away. And it's impossible now to get a decent picture of him. I mean, I threw a, a saddle on him for the first time. I think he's two and a half now. Yeah. Um, a couple of weeks ago and uh, you know just to see how he would react to it really and I was there trying to get a picture of him because he looked really grown up and yeah. it just didn't work because he was just smiling the whole time and of course his teeth <laughs> he's got a mouth like a piano keyboard at the moment there's gaps everywhere because he's losing all his teeth and it's, it's all on display terrible yeah. very very sweet all right so if you could spend a day uh, with any other horse person who would you pick and why gonna sound like a kiss ass now it would be you because I reckon it would be top banter yes <laughs> I would love that <laughs> I'd just be like tell me about <laughs> I, I love the conversation <laughs> we're having the other day as I was telling Kat about how you've come across different um slangs and use of language oh. in English oh my god it's almost like can you tell that story I think you should tell that story on the podcast <laughs> So I want to tell, I want to talk about that because I remember you asked me what what is what do you call a what what do you think a a flip like a those things you wear on I think you described it like that um it was cool what, what country were you in I was in Dubai you're in Dubai yeah and you were being told that you were not allowed to wear thongs by a South African was that were they from South Africa yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, of course, what we think are thongs and what you think are thongs is, and obviously we're the same as South Africa, so thongs are things you wear on your feet. And and to us, thongs are not what you wear on your feet. They're underwear in the UK. And um, that's a very funny story, and I think you should tell it. Okay. Um, So it was a dark night. No. Um, So I was in Dubai, and I had a South African manager and uh, actually most of the team were South African and I was knocking about in the tack room like you do and she came in to me and she said um hi Lizette I've just had a word with HR and it's ridiculous how much I make myself laugh at this story <laughs> yeah but it's so funny because it went on it on <laughs> and then she said um I've just had a word with HR and they've said that nobody is allowed to wear thongs around the horses anymore and 
I, I was just stunned and I said, what? And she said, none of you are allowed to wear thongs around the horses anymore. And I said, who's been wearing thongs around the horses? And she said, Javid and Usman, but you know, they've definitely been seen wearing them. And I bet Ali's been doing it as well. I think they've all been doing it. And I was like, and these Javid, Usman and Ali, they were these big Pakistani guys that worked for us. Um, so <laughs> I've got visions of my head of these big Pakistani guys <laughs> wearing G-strings or cleaning the horses. And I said, well, when, I said, when, when has this been happening? I've never seen it. And she said, well, yeah, because they, you know, they're the ones who wash the horses down and that's, that's when they tend to wear them. And I was like, but, but I said, how have HR seen it? If I've not seen it, how have they seen it? And then she said, oh, I don't know. You know, they would have just walked in, walked in and seen it, I suppose. I don't know. Um, and then I was like, well, okay, but I don't understand why HR are allowed to dictate what we wear. I mean, that that's a whole new level of the privacy invasion, you know? And he was there like, <laughs> well, you know, it's, 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 just how it, it's just how it is around here. And then I can't remember exactly what happened with it. And I said, but how... I, like uh, that was it. I said something. I said, but what, what would be wrong with us wearing our, our own clothes anyway? And she said, "Well, it's it's a health and safety risk." And um, that's when I said, well, "How how how can it be a health and safety risk?" I said, "How high are the horses lifting their feet here?" She said, "Oh, you know, horses are really clumsy." And then she kind of realized what I said, and then she was like, "I don't think we're talking about the same thing here." <laughs> Just, the, the, the funny thing is, is how long this conversation went on. Before you realised there was a difference of understanding. What the, what it, it was. went on forever. Oh <laughs> it just went on and on and on. And I think she probably didn't find it anywhere near as funny as I did. I, I mean, I just, when I realised, I just cracked up. I think I thought it was funny because I had all these visions in my head of our guys, like, doing these secret washes with the horses where they were wearing G-strings, <laughs> you know? It was crazy. I was like, oh, this is the sordid side of Dubai everyone's told me about. <laughs> yeah, so if we got to spend a day together, I'd just be like, tell me that time that you, you yeah. know, nearly died of an appendicitis on a Romanian outback dark road in the middle of the night or something because of the adventures you've had in your life. Um, I don't go looking for it. It just happens. <laughs> that's right. All right. So final question. Um, can you tell us how you can help people and how they can find out more about you? Um, when you say, how can I help people? Do you mean like in a counseling sense or do you mean like how? <laughs> no, it's just like, we, it, so you're what do you, what, what do you offer? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, tell us about your services. <laughs> I was really worried. I was like, I need to help no. people. Um, no. Okay. I'm glad you clarified that. Um, so I take courses in for internal training. I also offer courses with me, which are, at this point are a long weekend because uh, I'm still under cancer treatment. So uh, my energy is kind of limited. So I stick to a long weekend, in which case, you know, you can do a bit of groundwork, bit of horsemanship, bit of riding, bit of trail riding, bit of everything. Um, people in the area can come for riding lessons. They can send their horses for internal training. And if you're nowhere near me, then you can follow me on Facebook if you've got nothing better to do. I think and it's candid equitation. It's but, uh, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. 
All right. Well, um, it's been fabulous talking to you, Lysette. Um, yeah, yeah, we could just keep going on and on with more stories <laughs> <laughs> of the, the cultural differences, the traditional differences, the things that you've learned, the things that you've seen. Um, I don't think I've met anyone that has your experience in the horse world. Uh, so I'm very excited that we finally had you on to Canna Therapy and um, we'll let you, well, actually it's evening there, so we'll let you go to bed. <laughs> we'll get up, get our day going. I've got so, cancer, I'm not invalid. <laughs> actually, can I just finish off this podcast by saying there's one thing that you, you've taught me so much. And one of those things was, is, is when you said, you know, when you were really sick, I don't want your sympathy. Empathy's fine, but not your sympathy. Yeah, you were very um, good. You made me just like, instead of saying, you know, oh, you know, you'll be fine. You fight this. I'm so inspired by your, you know, your whatever. It's just listen to me. It's just listen to me and remind me that I'm yeah. kind of human, you know, that type of thing. So, yeah, yeah that really made me stop and think. Yeah, and oh, I'm glad. How much you work when you look at someone with cancer, you just think about yourself and how it makes you feel uncomfortable. And then it's exactly. a, yeah, yeah. In, instead of forgetting that, no, no, this is your, your thing you're going through, you know, and to acknowledge mm, that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you've been very good wake up call for horses um, as well as just for life in general. So thank you so much for giving us thank you. this time. And I hope more people will find out about you. And, can and I do need to add that I've been following you on Facebook for many, many years. And I have no okay. idea how I got there in the first place. But, yeah, I really appreciate all your posts. And then when Shelly adds another layer to you yeah. and when she talks about oh, you, thank I'm you. really excited <laughs> to have met you now. Yeah, yeah. Lysette Marie is a very special human being. <laughs> um, Lisette. Lisette. Yeah. See, I nearly got through the whole podcast behaving myself with how Try I say That's why it was annoying. <laughs> it was annoying. Anyway, we'll leave it there. <laughs> anyway, guys. <laughs> Have a good rest of the days and everything like that and um, we'll chat soon.